Well, we're in John, John 15, and, and we continue our time in the upper room discourse here. And, and as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death, his departure, he's talking about relationships here in John 15. And so last week we, we saw that the relationship that the disciples have with Jesus himself, with the vine, and that's, that's to be characterized by abiding and we also saw last week the relationship that the disciples are to have with one another. And, and love was to be the prominent feature of that, their relation, how they relate to one another. Today, we're looking at the relationship of the disciples to the world. And so there's this sudden shift in emphasis here in Jesus' teaching. We go from fellowship with Christ that leads to this fruitfulness to some of the darker, darker implications of what it means to follow Jesus. You, you see this stark contract, stark contrast. Just looking between verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, we're talking about love that characterizes relationships within the church, and then verse 18, it's hate that will be directed toward the church by the hostile world. And so, life in the vine and fellowship with Christ, it is it is fruitful, it is joyful. We saw that so clearly last. Weak, but listen, it will not be easy. It's not pain free. As the, the dark, kind of threatening clouds are, are building on the horizon for Jesus and his disciples, Jesus is getting them ready for the storm. He's preparing them in the upper room here. Not just ready for the trauma of seeing, seeing him, seeing their Lord, their master, their teacher. When they've left everything to follow, not just seeing him uh, suffer and the trauma that he will experience, but also getting them ready for the suffering that they will experience and, and for the rest of their lives in the world on account of their connection to Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus describes at length in these verses that we're looking at today, Paul summarizes in one very terse sentence uh, close to the time of his own execution in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so, this is what we're looking at today. I, I, I think I may have shared this illustration before. I says, I'm, I'm getting old enough now where I forget these things, and I've been here long enough where I've probably started to recycle some illustrations, so forgive me if I have. But I, I always, whenever I think of persecution, I think of this illustration. We, we were in seminary. We visited uh, with some missionary friends that were going back to serve in Chad, Africa. We were flying back there with them on an Air France flight. And um, there, at, many French people smoke today. But 17 years ago, almost all French people smoked, it seemed like, when, from our little exposure to, to France. But in a transatlantic flight from Los Angeles all the way to Paris, that's a long time to go without a cigarette if you are a smoker. And so often during this flight, people would go to the bathrooms and light up. And, uh, and so what would happen is there, there would be about every 30 minutes, the flight attendant would come over the loudspeaker and, and ask, remind people that there is no smoking in the, in the um, airplane lavatories and, and, and all of that. And so he would say it in French, and then he, it, he would also translate it into English. And when he translated it into English, he would always say, violators will be persecuted instead of prosecuted. And every time he said it, I, I just laughed because I had this picture of some chain smoker walking out of the bathroom and everybody, you know, hurling insults at him and throwing their little drinks at him and hitting him with those rock-hard rock airplane rolls and, you know, just harassing this, this guy that's being persecuted for smoking in the bathroom. Um, but, but, but what would happen is that they have those sensitive smoke detectors in those air, uh, airplane lavatories and... And so there were probably alarms going off in the cockpit or in, in the, uh, that the flight attendants could see. And, and, and the way that those smoke alarms work is there's a certain level of smoke that, that, um, that triggers a, that alarm so that it sounds. You know, you can, you, you can, there's an acceptable level, but whenever that level is exceeded, then the alarm sounds. I mean, just like in your own home. You can have, you know, one little piece of shredded cheese on the, it falls on the bottom of the oven and it does smoke a little bit and you might get a little whiff, something's, something's burning in the oven and it's just, oh, it's just a little piece of cheese. But now if you have a lasagna that boils over and is, you know, spilling in the oven, that's a lot of smoke and your smoke 
detector picks that up and goes off. Well, so, so I'd say that there's an acceptable level of religion in the world. There's an accepted level of even a kind of a bland type of, of Christianity, at least in the Western world at this time. You can go to church, you can pray over your meal, no problem. Nobody has a problem with that. But there's this threshold of tolerance. There's, there's, there's an accepted level of devotion to Christ. But whenever that is exceeded, then alarms start to go off. And, 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 and like the Air France warning, violators will be persecuted. In this case, that's the right word. That, that persecution, it was not just some strange phenomenon that the early church experienced. It hasn't just been a part of rare seasons throughout the history of the church. Like there have been, you know, these exceptional seasons of persecution through the history of God's people. No. What's exceptionally rare is what most of us have experienced our whole lives living in the United States. This is what's weird. A nation that's free from the more violent forms of persecution that most people in the world, most Christians in the world have only known. And for us to have experienced this for the, for the length of time we have, this is what's really the anomaly. And so we, we need to understand that in the broad picture. Even today, though, persecution is as intense as it's ever been in the world. 75% of the world's population lives in, in areas where there is severe restriction on religion. And, and most of these are, uh, are areas where you have Christians, and those are the greatest restrictions. Christians in more than 60 countries face moderate to severe uh, persecution by their governments or by their culture simply for their belief in Christ. Every month, on average, according to Open Doors USA, their website, uh, every month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 Christian churches or properties are destroyed. 772 acts of severe violence are committed against Christians for being Christians. Beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, forced marriages, that kind of thing. Uh, Today, in places like North Korea and Somalia and Afghanistan and Sudan and Eritrea and Pakistan and Iraq and Iran and Yemen and on and on, Christians are paying a heavy price for their faith in Christ. Beatings, physical torture, imprisonment, isolation, slavery, and then other things like discrimination and education and employment and commerce and and but even death. They're, they're just some of the ways that persecution is experienced in a daily place in these in a daily basis in these places. And so again, we can thank God for the privilege of living in a place like the United States of America in this day when, when this isn't our daily experience, but we can't separate ourselves from our brothers and sisters who this is, this is their life. But also, we, we, there isn't just application for them or for us to pray for them. They're, they're, don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility that there are forms of persecution in our own culture that you will experience at some point. That there is an increasing anti-Christian climate in the West. And we all see that. And so this should, shouldn't shock us. Because Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, and he, and he says to us through the scriptures, verse 18, if, and that if, that conditional clause there, is not if, and this just maybe, maybe this is possible. No, this is if, and it will happen. If and when the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. So to follow Jesus is to be hated by the world. That's what's normal. That's what's expected. And so the question for us today is how, how are we helped when we're hated? How does, how does Christ help us when, when we're hated people? And there are two commands in this passage. That, that These are the only two imperatives in this passage that we read. In verse 18 and verse 20 is know and remember Know and remember. The key to handling persecution is knowing and remembering. It's letting these truths sink in and, and, and bringing them often to mind, recalling them often. We've got we've to remember these things. We've got to really know these things. And so that's, that's what I want to see. So two points this morning. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing on the screen. But you first, you will be hated. Secondly, you will be helped. You will be hated, but you will be helped. 
Alright, so you will be hated. You can expect opposition. You know, our expectations, this happens in all kinds of areas of life. They're often, often very different from reality. Uh, I remember as a child expecting what my life would be like if I got something that I really wanted for Christmas, some game system. Like, man, every life is just going to be splendid. If I could just get this game system, everything's going to go, this will just be, this will be a life changer. And then you get, eh, kind of, kind of tired of it. Or, or you expect your summer vacation to the beach to be this incredible time and people get sick and the hurricane comes in and, you know, and family members are fighting with each other and say, okay. It's not what I expected. This is not the rest, restful time. Or, or you, you, you expect a, a move to another city is going to give you this fresh start, and then you find that, man, there, there's harder problems that we're working in, walking into here than we ever had before. You expect high school to be one way. You expect marriage to be one way. expect parenting to be one way. You expect retirement to be one way. And then you get there, and this is different. It's not what I expected. Well, there, there were ex- expectations about what life and God's kingdom would, would be like in Jesus' day. And the, and the prevailing view verged on kind of this triumphalism. That, that, that when the Messiah appeared, he would usher in this golden age of peace and prosperity like the world hadn't seen since, like Israel hadn't seen since the time of David. And everything would just be, just be wonderful. And, and we can understand why they expected that because you look at these promises about this future kingdom that is coming. And so this is, this is what they expect with, with the Messiah and here Jesus and things look different. I mean, John told, told us how this expectation surfaced with the crowds that were following Jesus and pressing in to hear him. And, and they forcibly tried to make Jesus king after the feeding of the, of the thousands. And so, so again, this expectation. And that same deep-rooted hope and expectation was present in the disciples. Even after all of Jesus' teaching about what life would be like, about his sufferings and about what would happen, after all of that, even after all, after his sufferings on the cross, they're gathered together in, a, in another upper room and, and, and they're asking Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? They, they still didn't get what life would be like for them. Jesus said, just told them, back again into our context, he's told, just told them that they would do even greater works than he did. And so maybe they're envisioning this, this, this receptive crowds and smooth sailing and, you know, oh, this is just going to be wonderful. But instead, what they will experience is what Jesus says is hate. You'll be hated. Seven times in verses 18 to 25, the word hate. You will be hated. You can't expect opposition. Following me will be costly. What are, what are some reasons that you and I will be hated? Three, three reasons here. Note these. In verse 19, first of all, we will be hated because of where you will be hated because of where you belong. Because of where you belong. Where you belong has a profound effect on the way that you are treated. I mean, you've, you've no doubt heard and read and seen stories about immigrants, I mean even legal immigrants in our country and other nations that, that, that they're, they're, they're harassed and bullied, go back to where you came from and, and you're not one of us, you're not from here, you don't belong here. You see, you see if, if, if you don't belong, then again, that has an impact on the way you're treated. And so what Jesus is saying, you will be hated because you're different, you're, 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 because you're not from these parts. It's not where you belong. Jesus says to his disciples, if you were, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, before we even unpack that hatred of the world, let me just push the pause button. Is your heart just overwhelmed with gratitude for the fact that God chose you out of the world? We, we saw this in the end of last week. You did not chose me, but I chose you. I mean, God, God in His grace, you've, you've been chosen by God. You're a, you're a Christian. It's His grace. It's His free mercy. Are you, is, your, is your heart just elated at that thought? That, that, that you were in the same mess as the rest of the world. You were, you were living in the city of destruction, and God has plucked you out of that in His mercy. 
That's, that's His grace. Not because we were better, because we, we, we were more attractive, but solely, again, by the mercy of God. But again, don't think that being chosen, don't, don't think that being chosen and all the blessings that flow from that, like we looked at last week, that that means life is going to just be, you know, rainbows and, and butterflies and glitter and stuff like that, or whatever is exciting to you. I'm thinking about a six-year-old girl, apparently, but... Um, <laughs> But, but the world you've been chosen out of now hates you. The world. It, it, six times in verses 18 and 19. And there are different ways in which this word world is used in, in the New Testament. And so sometimes it's talking about just the simple created world, the earth. And so you see it in John 1.10 where Jesus, uh, he was in the world, but the world was made through him. God Christ made everything. The world was made through Christ. Uh, there's also the world of humanity, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. He loved the people of the world. He loved humanity. And then third, there's, there's this world system that, that opposes God. And this is, I think, the meaning Jesus has in mind here. There's this organized world system that, that's under, the, under Satan's domain and is opposed to God and His rightful King, Jesus. And, and this includes, as we'll see in a moment, this, the religious world. They think they're honoring God, but they're trying to kill you. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies on the power of the evil one. And so, you now, we say that, and, but you can go out on the street here in particular and you, you ask people, do you hate Jesus? Why do you hate Jesus? And they'll say, hey, I don't hate Jesus. I got nothing against Jesus. You know, or do you follow the devil? I don't follow the devil. I'm not some Satan worshiper or anything like that. And everybody deny that. They, they, don't, they don't believe in or uh, follow Jesus, sure. But they're not opposed to him or to those who, who follow him. They're, they're certainly not aware that they're following the devil and wouldn't claim that. But what happens? They ignore God in daily life. Um, the average person, again, isn't going to say, I, I hate Jesus, I hate Christians, at least not in the United States or in the West, and not in this time. Um, but so, so why does Jesus say that the world hates both him and his father, as we'll see in verse 23, as well as believers? When so many believers say that they, they don't have anything against Jesus or against Christians. Well, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, just again, it gives us this from Jesus' perspective. Matthew 12, 30 said, He who is not with me is against me. It was this black and white, no, no gray zone. He, so he paints it in those colors. And so Jesus makes it clear here that if we, if we don't, that, that, that that's the world, that's this system, that's this world system that's in opposition to God. And, and so be prepared for that. Jesus makes it clear that we don't belong to that world any more than he belongs to that world. We've been chosen out of the world. And this, become, this became one of the most important um, truths in the self-understanding of, of early Christians in the first decades of the church. And so you have Paul describing himself as a citizen, not of Rome, but of, of heaven. Philippians 3.20. Writer of Hebrews Talked about having, we have, no, we have no abiding place in this world, but rather as, as one of God's pilgrim people, we, we're looking for a better country, a city that will last. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. And so, so the world's hatred is directed toward those who are not of the world, who've been chosen out of the world. If you walked in, step with the world, there wouldn't be a problem. Your life wouldn't, you wouldn't have the smoke level that would trigger the alarm. The world would love you as its own, Jesus says. But since Jesus has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, you're different, you don't belong. So you can expect to be hated. Second reason that you will be hated is because of the one to whom you belong. Because of the one to whom you belong. Verse 18 and then verses 20 to 21. Uh, so the ultimate reason that the world hates you is because it hates Jesus. Yes, your, your, your union in Christ is what allows you to bear fruit, but your union with Christ is also what causes you to bear reproach. And 
This is very clear. And so Jesus uses this, he talks about this master-slave relationship that was understood by all in his day. And, and so the servant receives the same treatment as the master, for good or for bad. So look verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So the opposition that we as Christians experience isn't because there's something wrong with us. It's because of who we belong to. It's because we're identified with Christ. He's our master. We are his servants. And therefore, what he received is the same kind of treatment we can receive. We shouldn't be surprised if we receive the same opposition that he experienced, if we receive the same treatment that he received. And so when our message is received, the word is kept or it's rejected, it's all, the text says, on account of Jesus' name. It's His name that's the divider. It's not ultimately up to us. And, and what we also see in verse 21 is that what's really behind the world's hatred toward Christ and therefore us is ignorance. It's ignorance. We see it in verse 21. We see it in chapter 16, verse 3. They don't know God. They don't know the Father. They don't know the Son. They, they, they hate because they're separated from God. They don't know Him. And so, what's the solution then to, to, to the world's hatred? Is it, is it public service announcements where we just kind of let everybody know, hey, we're not the bad guys, we're, we're good, you know? We're not the enemy here. Is it political posturing? Is it governmental reform? Is it, is it more favorable laws? Is it raising awareness in the culture? Is that, is that the answer? No. That the, that the cure for hatred toward toward God and toward, toward Christians even, is, is reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that needs to be our goal. Hatred is removed as the gospel is proclaimed and believed in the world, as people truly know God through Christ. That's, that's when the hatred dissolves, because hatred is caused by ignorance. Ignorance is, is cured through faith in the crucified and risen Christ. And so knowing God as we've seen throughout, through, earlier in John, knowing God is the essence of, of eternal life that Christ calls us to believe in Him for. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The world does not know God. And so they hate. They hate those who belong to God, to belong to Christ. So we're hated because we're not from here. We're hated because we belong to Jesus. And then third, we're hated because darkness just hates light. Darkness hates light. The world is, the world is wrapped up in, enslaved to, in love with, blinded by darkness. Darkness, wickedness, sin, it, it makes, this cruel, makes for this cruel taskmaster who only abuses and only exploits people. And, and Jesus, who is the light, he, he, he comes and he, he exposes this twisted love of the darkness and just break this brutal slavery. But those in darkness, they don't naturally come to the light. They don't come out of that. They don't run from their captor, Satan, to their rescuer, Jesus. It's, it's like that Stockholm Syndrome where, the, where the, the, the kidnapped one, the abducted one, the captor, or hostage, it develops this kind of sympathy toward the abusive uh, captor. And so the darkened world, it suffers from this. We don't come to the light. We're, we're in bondage to darkness, but we won't, we won't come to the light and set us free. And so the truth of Christ, this light, it collides with, with people's lives in darkness. And so in verse 22 to 25, we see this, that and, and, and Jesus exposes, what we'll see here is He exposes what's really the worst of sins, the grossest kind of sin. And, and, and Jesus already talked about this in the Gospel of John, way back in John 1.11. Jesus came to His own people, but even His own people don't receive Him. They, the ones who know better, 
You know, if you hate somebody that you don't even know and you don't know anything about, that's just dumb. Maybe we do this and we have, you know, we, we have these strong, adverse feelings to people. Like, I've never met them. I don't know anything about them, but I just don't like you, you know. And, and so that's just, that's just doesn't make any sense. But if you hate someone who's harmed you, we can at least understand that. But, if you, but it's utterly wicked to hate somebody that you know is good. And, 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 and right. And here Jesus, He's perfect. He, he came and He spoke the truth to them. He came and He did all these miraculous signs and, and wonders for them and healed them and, 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 and did all of this. He, and they, they saw God, God revealed in Him. And yet they still hated Him. They hated the Son. They hated His Father. They hated Jesus, as we'll see in verse 25, without a cause. Not a single fault they could find in Jesus, yet they hated him. So, verse 22, again, we see this the exceeding sinfulness of sin here. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Just hold on, I'll explain that. Let's just keep reading. Verse 23 Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I, had done nothing, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. What is he, what is he saying there? He's not saying that, 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 that the people were sinless before He came and they started hating Him. Like, man, if I, if I hadn't come, they'd, they'd be sinless and be right before God. That's not what he's saying. The Bible is clear that all people, even those who've never heard of Jesus, are sinners and are, are guilty sinners before God. All people have evidence that there's a Creator by looking at His cre- creation and, and therefore they suppress that truth and unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 1. And their consciences bear witness against them. They know right and wrong. That's innate. So, the conclusion that Paul makes in Romans 3.23 is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so that's not the issue. What Jesus means that His coming, His powerful teaching, His mighty works, His miracles, they, they increased the people's responsibility and guilt when they didn't believe in Him and didn't receive Him. Increased light, if rejected, means increased guilt. And Jesus, Jesus, there's an illustration of this in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 11, 20-24, where Jesus talks about these cities that have rejected Him, and, and He denounced them where He did so many miracles, and yet they didn't believe, and He says, you know what, you, you, it would be more tolerable for, tolerable for Sodom on the Day of Judgment than for you cities. Because increased exposure to the light just increases guilt for those who don't receive the light. Yes, that's a, something we need to hear, brothers and sisters. And this all echoes the familiar themes of, of darkness and light that have been running throughout John's Gospel. Jesus, the light of the world, he, he came into this darkened place and there was this division in humanity. Those who are drawn to Him, those who are driven away from Him. John 3, verse 19 to 20. And this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. And, and yet the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And in the same way that Christ is the light of the world causes this division, we who represent the light of the world in the world, and that, that, that the response toward us is divided. On account of Jesus' name, as he's already said. And so you've got to see, it's the, the oppositions that Christians face. Again, it's a hatred without cause. But the, but the word that is written in them, verse 25, in their law, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It's not a matter of logic. It's a matter of sin and unbelief. Unbelief isn't due ultimately to a lack of solid evidence. I mean, in Jesus' own day, they heard His words, they saw His signs, but still they rejected Him in unbelief. So you will be hated. You can expect to be hated. But, but facing, facing up to the inevitability of, of opposition isn't enough, is it? I was just like, man, 
just be ready. You know that it's going to be hard out there. Okay, well, that doesn't really help me. I mean, I guess it helps me a little to know what's coming, but I, I need more than that. Uh, we, need, we need more help than that. So we need to actually be prepared to handle it. And, 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 and so how, what help is there to, to handle the hostility, hostility that we will face in the world for being um, identified with Christ? And that's the second thing. You will, be, you will be hated. Secondly, you will be helped. You can expect help in the midst of opposition. You know, too often Christians have sought to kind of cope with and handle, um, handle opposition, handle hatred in, in, in their own, on their own terms, in their own way, with, no, with not relying upon the resources that Jesus has provided. So you run away, you can hide, you can, can, can kind of retreat, blend in, adopt a live and let live policy in the world and just kind of this uneasy coexistence. So that's so, We've, Christians have struggled with these kinds of means, but Jesus gives us a completely different method for handling opposition. Two things, or really three things that we'll see here. The first one is we have the Spirit. And it's this, is we depend upon the witness of the Spirit. That's our first resource, depend upon the witness of the Spirit. Verse 26, but when the Helper... That's that word that we looked at a few weeks ago, the advocate, the counselor. It's that courtroom language, the one who gives testimony. When, when, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness, witness about me. So the Spirit of truth, the helper, will come and he will tell it like it is. He, he will provide true testimony to Jesus and His work, no matter how people try to discredit His name and, and what He's done. He will provide that. So you can just imagine those early disciples and the, and the mounting opposition that they experienced and this thought, is this really true? It really, is, is, is all this really happened? And some questions and doubts that would surface in their minds, trying to understand what's happened, what they witnessed. And so but, but, what John is saying is that when the Spirit came though he would he would bring out the truth of the, and let the facts just speak for themselves he will bear witness there's there's no need to concoct these elaborate stories to, to, to or explanations that the facts were plain to see and the holy spirit has made them so the spirit gives witness so you get in like acts 532 you see an example an illustration of this in acts 532 he says, we're, we're witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And so the Spirit has given us the Word of God. We have the Scriptures, and He's inspired this, these, these writings. And, and so that tells us everything we need to know about Christ and His redemptive work. But also the Spirit takes this Word and he speaks it he speaks it strongly to our hearts so that we know it's indeed truth the spirit is he's an advocate he's a he's a helper he's the spirit of truth and he he comes and he he bears witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and we we got to depend upon him how do we press on as witnesses for Jesus Christ in a in a world that's hostile and when when we're hated by the world how how do we do that we got to We've got to depend upon the Spirit who's a witness to Christ. I know we, we often say, well, man, what, are the, what are the greatest hindrances to, to evangelism and bearing witness to Christ? Why, do we, why are we so slow to speak of Christ? And so often it's fear. It's fear of the world, fear of opposition, fear of not knowing what to say. But I would say there may be an underlying, a deeper underlying reason. And, it, and maybe the reason we're so reluctant is there's this lack of dependence upon the Spirit of God. And so that, that might under, uh, be the under, undergirding problem that is related to those others. So, but we have the Spirit. So the Spirit comes. He's saying when the Spirit comes, we know the Spirit has come. So we have this great resource. Second, second how, how are we helped when hated? We, we, can, we can rely upon the witness of the apostles. We can rely upon the witness of the apostles. The apostles have this unique testimony. They, they had been with Jesus from the beginning, and it was their Christ-appointed task to report what they had seen. Verse 27, And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me 
from the beginning. So they, they, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to provide testimony to Jesus Christ, what we have in our New Testament scriptures. And so we have this. And so today we can, we can be helped, really helped, when we're hated, when we experience opposition, as we stand upon the unshakable testimony of the apostles in the scriptures here. And the power of the Holy Spirit to make it connect to lives. We don't have to rely upon our cleverness or our persuasiveness, but on the gospel that is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. And so this is, this is, we have these resources. We are not left helpless. And then the other resource that we have is, is again, it's just this loving preparation of Jesus. Loving preparation of Jesus. Verse six, or chapter 16 we're also helped by Christ Himself who gets us ready again by telling us what will happen. That is part of the preparation, part of the help for us. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And, and so, so Jesus' great love for them, His profound concern for their well-being to keep them from stumbling. He, he warns them in advance what to expect and He tells them what help is available to them. And so he, he, keep, he doesn't want them falling away. The, the idea is just stumbling. It's not losing salvation or ultimate apostasy or anything like that. It, he's talking to and about the eleven here, those who are already clean we saw last week. And so the idea is being caught in a trap. It's being surprised. I don't want you to be caught alarmed and tripped up. I don't want that. And so I'm telling you this in advance. He wants his children to be fully prepared for what's coming. And, and he says in verse 2, he speaks of this opposition, this persecution. It's going to be intense. And in many cases, it's going to lead to martyrdom. Verse 2, they will, they will put you out of the synagogues. You, you will be cut off from the community and from the worship, worship gathering. You're going to lose friends. But it's, it's more than that. It's not just like, you know, they're going to, you're going to get kicked out of your church. You're going to go, find, you're going to go you know, a half mile down the road to another church. It's going to be awful, you know. That's not what he's talking about. When he, says you're, you, when he says you'll be cut off, you're cut off from life in Israel. You're, you're, you're done. You're, you're, any hope of, of, of relational ties and uh, commerce transactions and social life and, and, and life was dependent upon the community and they say, you're, you're, it's all gone. You're going to be alone in this world. But he goes on. Indeed, the hour is coming when Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Religious people will kill Christians and think that it honors God. I know we have versions of this in our day, don't we? And Islam and Hinduism and false Christian religions. And in and, and Paul's day it was Judaism. And you had Saul, this vicious killer of Christians before he was converted. Again, thinking he's honoring God. Martyrdom would await nearly every man around that table with Jesus in the supper room. That would be the fate of almost all the men. At the time John penned these words, there were probably there were already some who had been killed for the cause of Christ. Uh, but to us, uh, it may not feel like that to you, but following Jesus may cost you everything. You may lose your family. Your family may be cut off. You, people may try to hurt you or even kill you all because you follow Jesus. Jesus says, you, you count the cost. You, you choose. You can't serve two masters. And so, dear brother and sister, are you willing, like Paul said earlier, to, to bear on your body the brand marks of Jesus Christ, to bear the scars of following Christ? And it may or may not be physical. Are you willing to face opposition in the name of Christ. In the book of Acts, we see the persecution and murder of Christians in the name of God. Beatings inflicted on Peter and the other apostles in Acts 5 by religious leaders. Stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And that hour of persecution that begins there, but it hasn't stopped. We, we, we're, continue to, to, we're, we're there today. I'm going to ask Luke if he could just show a, a short video just an example. This is of a, a, a sister in North Korea and her trial. So show this, and then I'll just have a couple things left to say, and we'll, we'll pray. Others like um, Hee Woo, who are 
in those war camps in North Korea right now, God. And you have your people there that are clinging to a scrap of scripture or verses they've memorized and crying out to you for help to sustain them through that just dark, awful ordeal that they're walking through, God. And I pray that you would keep our brothers and sisters strong in your grace. And God, even if it's to death that they would they would be uh, with their last breath crying out that that you are that Christ is Lord and that He is that your grace is enough, God. And so use uh, our sister's story to uh, encourage other Koreans who North Koreans who are in that situation and to raise awareness for people like us to continue to pray and labor um, for our suffering brothers and sisters. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, Jesus shows his concern. Jesus ends by showing his concern, just wanting us to know what's happening and to explain it. And so he ends in 16 there, verse 3. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And there's help in knowing. So as Christians, brothers and sisters, we, we will be hated, but we're not alone. We'll be helped, just like our sister story we heard. And the key is to know, is to remember. There, there are things that we got to know, things we have to remember, just like uh, Hewu was saying. There were these truths that she clung to and, and promises that, that sustained her. And so just what are some, just a few practical things. What, how, what do we know? What do we need to know in the, uh, to, 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 to press on in times of opposition? Just a few points in conclusion here. First, know that you can experience joy in the midst of persecution. This is not a unique Testimonies. Not I, I. I don't say this lightly. I realize I speak from a place of comfort and ease here, like where we sit. But this is it's just true. Hebrews twelve two it tells us to to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, to remember that this, this light and momentary affliction is producing for us this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now we, we, we talked about Hebrews 11 earlier, and, but in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, there's another illustration of this I was just thinking of. Hebrews 10, verse 32, the writer says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So sometimes you were the ones beaten and thrown into prison. Sometimes you refused to, to separate yourself from those who were beaten and thrown into prison. So you were identified with them. And he says, verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you, and, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So, so the prisoners in that day, they weren't given three meals a day and taking care of and time out to exercise or anything like that. They, they, were, they, were, they were dependent upon those outside for their survival. But he says, but to, to, uh, to take food, to take a meal, to care for the needs of those in prison, you're identifying yourselves with them and with their God. And so these, these people were going and were ministering to the brothers and sisters in prison. And by so doing, they had all their belongings taken away. And they says that they joyfully... Watch their belongings go. Take it. Take my car. I mean, whatever their version. Take the couch. Take, take the furniture. Take the dishes. Take it all. Because we have, a, we have a better possession and an abiding one. That's, that's hard. But, but there, there, there can be joy in the midst of affliction. We've we got to walk by faith in this greater joy than, than by sight in our present sufferings. Jesus did it. And, and, and Jesus experiences joy, promises that even in our suffering, we can know joy in the midst of affliction. Second, 
Know that being hated by the world for Christ does not thwart God's sovereign plan, but it fulfills it. Just because you're hated, it doesn't mean that God's plan is somehow set aside or it's been interrupted. No, it's, it's actually fulfilling it. And I know this is a, this is a hard one for us to, to think through. And I'm not saying God, God is the cause of evil or he's, he's, he's behind, you know, direct, in some direct way, the suffering that you're experiencing. That's not, that's not it. But he, he, he uses even those, the wicked plans of men and he, he uses them for his own good and glory. And so, so the, the, what we saw this in John 15 very, very explicitly in verse 25 that, that this suffering without cause, it's actually fulfilling God's word. And so I just say when, when, believe, when unbelievers, when, when opposition, when those who hate us seem to win, don't fret. God's still in control. Ultimately, Jesus wins. We have the book of Revelation and our copy of the scriptures. All unbelievers who wrong you will be judged. God will vindicate his people who have been persecuted for his name's sake. It's not an interruption to God's plans. Third, know that in spite of the world's hatred, you should lovingly testify to the world about the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus leaves us in this hostile world to, pro- to proclaim his gospel, to proclaim his glory, 1 Peter 2, 9. So our posture toward the unbelieving world shouldn't be one of of animosity. It should be one of compassion. We shouldn't hate our mission field. That's not generally a great way to go out and make disciples of all nations by hating everybody that we come in contact with. Is your heart moved with compassion for the lost? Even the hostile lost. The co-worker who ridicules you for being a Christian. Do Do you love them? You see them as an eternal soul heading to, for eternal destruction unless the mercy of God falls upon them and, and saves them from their sins. And we sing this occasionally. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Uh, send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. This is, that should be the cry of our hearts, Lord. Pity the nations. Constrain them to come, Lord. It's, it's just... One, I would just say, we were there. We were not born friendly to God. We were hostile. And, and so it's only God's mercy that we have believed and no life and no God. A little side note, don't, don't confuse being persecuted for righteousness' sake with being persecuted for being a jerk. <laughs> uh, and we, we, we know some extreme cases of this, and there are Westboro Baptist kind of folks, and, and they're... They're picketing and just the inflammatory things that they say. That's, that's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's not persecuted for the name of Christ. So don't confuse those two. You, sh- you shouldn't be the source of offense by being obnoxious or rude or, or crude. We, we conduct ourselves, Paul says, with wisdom and grace towards, towards unbelievers, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. And also... In order to bear witness lovingly in the world for Christ in the, in the midst of opposition, we actually have to have some contact with the world. And, and so maybe, maybe that's an area. We, we, do you have, do you know, are you, are you actually involved with unbelievers? I, I know you are in some way, but are you intentionally looking to build relationships or are you kind of held up in your house and in your neighborhood, you don't know your neighbors and you just, you're afraid to get outside and engage with people because might be polluted and all those kinds of thoughts, but do you have meaningful friendships, relationships with the lost? We're, 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 or are you always insulating yourself from, from unbelievers? I don't mean from the world. Jesus says don't love the world, and that's that evil world system, but are you insulating yourselves from the world, meaning lost humanity? It's two different things. And then finally, know that you will receive what Jesus received from the world. Know that you will receive what Jesus received from the world. Mostly hatred, but also some fruit. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So if you expect everyone to respond favorably to your witness of Christ, you'll be discouraged when they don't. But if you expect everyone to respond negatively, you won't even try to bear witness. And, and so Jesus promises, some will believe through your witness. 
Some will respond in faith to the gospel witness and rather than in opposition and unbelief. Again, in case you want, a, you want a, a living illustration of this, and you, we have. It's not because we were better. It's God's grace. But some will believe. If somebody hadn't spoken and told me about Christ, I would not have believed. Somebody had the courage to, to speak and, and so believe. So keep proclaiming the good news. we got a great opportunity, again, coming up with our Easter outreach. You've got those invitations in your boxes. We're, about to, we're going to put some banners up here inviting our neighbors and folks to drive along Corinth Road to, to join us on Easter. And we're going to be canvassing these neighborhoods uh, a week from Wednesday. And so join us for that. And, and we're wanting to cast a wide net and saying, hey, there is life in Christ. Now, some will reject. Some will oppose. Some will hate. Some will write us nasty letters. Why did you leave this on my doorstep? And, and you're littering up my yard. We'll ex- we expect that. And we're not trying to be, again, rude or insensitive or trespassing. But you can expect opposition. But we pray to God that some will believe. There will be fruit. Oh, Lord, help us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, would you, as we, as we have a heart to see this community just saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ, this, this immediate neighborhood and all of the, the neighborhoods and parts of this, this, this southern crescent area, God, where our people live and neighbors that, they, that, that, that are in their neighborhood and people that they meet in, in workplaces and businesses and restaurants and shopping. And God, just help us to be vocal um, vocal witnesses of Jesus Christ and just casting the gospel broadly, God, knowing that many will reject, many will not but believe, but some, some will. Lord, bring in harvest of fruit, not for our applause, but for the, for the applause of men, but for the glory of your name and the eternal good of, of these souls. Um, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.